0: difference between have to and want to. Everything we do in life, anytime we do something, there's some sort of internal driver that's connected to one of those two things. We either do something in life because we have to do it, or we do something in life because we want to do it. Those are the two motivators. For example, let me just kind of give some scenarios here, and you can kind of determine uh, which one it is, have to or want to. So I live in Frankenmuth Township, and this week I happen to have, this is the week where uh, it's due for me to pay my housing tax, okay? So, and in Frankenmuth, right, it's it's a doozy, right? It's their taxes. So tomorrow morning, I will drive to the township office, and I will hand them a sizable check, and i will give them that check to pay my taxes. so when it comes to paying my taxes, is this a, a have to or a want to kind of thing? have to. right? as much as i you know, maybe there's somebody out there that really wants to pay their taxes. i think most of us would agree that we do that because we have to. it's it's the law, it's our duty, it's our oblig- obligation to do that. and so that's why we pay our taxes. we do it because we have to. Let me give you another scenario. Okay, so today happens to be the Super Bowl. Who are you rooting for today? Okay, Yeah, I'm rooting for the Rams too. Stafford, right? It's the closest we're going to get. Let's just be honest. So Super Bowls today, I don't particularly care. I'm not going to be really, you know, bummed out whoever wins. It's not a big deal to me. What I'm most looking forward to today is the fact that there's going to be all sorts of unhealthy food that I'm going to eat, and it's going to be Wonderful. None of it's going to be in the diet plan. There may be, I don't know, uh, chicken wings, chips, pizza rolls. I don't know what's, the, what's on the menu. I just know it's unhealthy, right? So when it comes to tonight uh, and eating unhealthy food, am I going to do this because I have to or because I want to? I heard maybe a couple have to's out there. It's a strong compulsion. I agree. But this is definitely a want to. You don't have to. Okay, You you want to eat unhealthy food, and it will be delicious tonight. Eating that on the couch, I will not feel bad about it one bit. This is not an obligation. It's not a law. It's not a requirement. Not a rule. This is not a have-to. This is a a want-to. I want to do that. That makes sense? Okay, now we could just play this game all day long. I could just bring other scenarios, and you could guess have-to or want-to, but we, you know, at some point have to get out of here and watch the Super Bowl. So I'm not going to take too much time. Uh, I'm just going to have one more question for you. Uh, this last question, again, it's the same rules. It's gonna be, you're gonna guess whether it's a have to or want to, but the, the difference this time with this last question is I want you to do something different. I don't want you to shout out loud, have to or want to. What I want you to do is just answer quietly in your own mind and in your own heart. Think about what your answer is when I ask this next question about something we do. So this is something that many people do. And so I want you to answer, is this a have to or a want to? So for Christians, When it comes to obeying God, obedience to Jesus, is this a a have to or is this a want to? Now, I need you to think about that for a moment. I want you to think through this. Do Christians pursue a life of obedience because they have to or because they want to? Because for some people, When it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to uh, this idea of obeying God, for some people, it sounds like drudgery. Uh, For some people, this whole idea of being a Christian, that kind of sounds like a a, a drag, like that's going to cramp their style, right? There's all these rules you have to follow, all these boxes you have to check, all these hoops you have to jump through. For some people, obedience to God, it sounds like a burden. Sounds like a burden, not something that you want to do, probably just something you have to do, so you just do it. And is that the case? What motivates the church to obey God? That's the question I want to ask today. Well, thankfully, uh, whatever answer you're thinking, you don't have to answer right now because God's word is going to help us find an answer for this. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 John. We're in 1 John chapter 5 this morning. 1 John chapter 5, and just a little heads up, sometimes this is confusing. We're not in the book of John Okay, the Gospel of John is in the beginning of the New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John as one of the Gospels. Not that book. This is near the end of your Bibles, the book of 1 John. So you get to some small books, First, 2 Peter, 1, Second, 3 John, Jude, Revelation, 1 John, chapter 5. That's where we're at, near the end of your Bibles. And, and if you're here today and it's one of the first times you've joined us and you don't own a physical Bible, the Bible in front of you is yours to take home today. We would love for you to have uh, your own Bible. And so you can take one with you if you'd like. But as you're turning there, we're um, just giving you a heads up. We're wrapping up this series on burdens. And so it's been a five-week series. And so far throughout this series, you know, we've examined all these things in life that many of us are bogged down by. We're weighed down by burdens that we all face, challenges, uh, uh, hardships that we all have to endure. We've talked about this throughout the series. And one of the the concepts that we had through this series is this idea that, that not every burden is meant to be carried. And no burden should ever be carried alone. This is some of the, the 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 stuff that we've tried to promote throughout the series. And so, if you're with us each week, we've kind of broke this down week by week. And so, in the first week, we talked about this idea that we don't uh, we should never have to carry our burdens alone. And we talked about this specifically by looking at Jesus and the words he said. If you remember, uh, Jesus talked specifically to those who were burdened. He he said, "Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest." Remember, Jesus never said, "Hey." take your burdens and deal with those, figure that junk out, and then you can come to me. No, no, that's not what he said. He doesn't say offload your burdens, then come. He said, come to me, you who are burdened, right? What what qualifies us to come to Jesus is the fact that we're burdened. And he invites us to come, and he offers to give us rest. He offers to help us carry the load. And so we talked about that week one. The second week, we talked about the book of Galatians, and we talked about what Paul says to the church in Galatians about followers of Jesus. He says, share one another's, bear one another's burdens, and when you bear one another's burdens, you you fulfill the law of Christ. You embody the example of Jesus when you do that. And so that means that we should never have to carry a burden alone, because not only is Jesus willing to help us shoulder the load, but as one another in the body of Christ, we should always be willing to help each other. Don't look at people in the church and say, oh man, they're struggling with stuff. That stinks to be them. No, enter into their suffering, help them shoulder the load. We're called to carry one another's burdens, to bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. That was week two. Uh, week three, we began to tackle this other section. We talked specifically about the fact that not every burden is, is meant to be carried. And if you remember, week three, we talked about the biggest burden of all, the burden of sin. And how sin, the penalty of sin is something that Jesus took on his behalf, right? When he went to the cross, he died in our place. And so that burden, that penalty of sin was placed upon Jesus. And so that's a burden that we don't have to carry. You don't have to be judged for your sin. Jesus was judged in your place. And so we shared that. What an amazing reminder that was. And then last week, we also talked about this idea that not every burden is meant to be carried. Specifically as a Christian, if you're walking around with the burden of guilt everywhere you go, just a reminder that we can always return to the cross. We can always confess our sins. And scripture tells us that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you're walking around feeling guilty all the time as a Christian, uh, remember, you don't have to live that way. Uh, We use the example of David in the Psalms and how he confessed his sin and he repented and God relieved the burden of his guilt and God can do the same thing in your life. So that's what we looked at so far through the series. And now finally today, as we wrap up the series, we're looking at the topic of obedience. And specifically, we're asking the question, is following Jesus, is obedience to God a burden? Is obeying God a burden? Is this motivated by something that we have to do or is this something that we want to do? And to answer that question, again, we're in the book of First John. We're going to find the answer there. And so uh, we're going to get ready to jump in in just a second. But I want to just kind of remind you of a few things about this book because we haven't talked about it yet. So the book of First John is an epistle. Now, an epistle is just a fancy way of saying a letter. Uh, John wrote a letter from the city of Ephesus, and he wrote it to probably the church in Ephesus, but maybe even some of the churches in that region. There were many churches scattered throughout Asia Minor where Ephesus was, and so he perhaps wrote this letter to a bunch of different Christians. And just to give you kind of a timeline, remember Jesus, after he died on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, a lot of the disciples, they centered, they all went to Jerusalem, and then from there, there was persecution, and so some spread out. Well, John stayed there. He didn't leave Jerusalem. He was ministering in Jerusalem for many, many years. And then eventually what happened was in AD 67, Uh, John was kind of forced to flee out from the city of Jerusalem. If you know your history, in 70 AD, the Romans came, they invaded, they really decimated the city, they destroyed the temple. And so John got out of Dodge before all that happened, and he went to the city of Ephesus, and there in the city of Ephesus, he did the work of an apostle there, and he ministered there for a while. And as John was in there, he wrote this letter near the end part of the first century. Okay, So he wrote this letter to help the churches understand specifically what it means to be an authentic Christian. What does it look like to be an authentic follower of Jesus? Well, this is what John writes throughout the duration of his letter. And I wanna give you just real quickly a word of caution. When we read the book, a book like First John, a lot of times we read it and it almost looks like there's a list of do's and don'ts all over the place. Like it's just one big list of do's and don'ts. I want you to know that reading the book of 1 John shouldn't be a list of do's and don'ts. It's a list of done. It's it's a list of done. What I mean by that is that all these things that he talks about, these are things that embody and characterize followers of Jesus, not because of what we can do, but because of what Jesus has already done. What Jesus has already accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection, this now creates in us a new kind of life. And John talks about that in his epistle. And so here in chapter five, that's exactly what we're going to see. He's going to describe what authentic Christianity looks like. And as he does this, the first thing he wants to remind us of in chapter five is who we are. He wants to talk about our identity as followers of Jesus in this chapter. And so in light of that, the first section we're going to look at, number one is the membership. We're going to look at the membership of a true believer, the membership of an authentic follower of Jesus. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Who are we at the core? This is what John is going to answer. And so notice what he says, beginning in verse one. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So what's he saying here? What's the essence of this first sentence? He's saying this, that faith is a sign of sonship. Faith is a sign of sonship. Notice how he says, everyone who believes. The word belief that's used here is a word that we use all the time in the church, right? As Christians, we we use this word faith or belief all the time. In fact, it's a central part of what it means to be a Christian. It's all centered on this idea of faith or belief. Now, the concept of faith, we sometimes misunderstand, Because sometimes we kind of compartmentalize this and relegate this simply to our thinking, right? As if faith is something that's just a matter of uh, intellectual assent, right? Uh, Agreeing that something is true, that's all it is. That's what we often think about. But that's not really the way that the Bible uses the word faith. It's much more robust in the Bible. The idea here is not just that Christians are people of faith. It's also that Christians are faithful people. We're not just people of faith. We're faithful people. Faith is about more than just what we think. It's about believing loyalty. It's about committed trust. Christians are people who invest both their mind and their heart into something. And what are we investing our mind and heart into? What is this faith centered on? Who is it anchored in? It's anchored in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our faith is anchored in Jesus. John says it like this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Now the word Christ that's used here is a word that means Messiah or anointed one. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that people were anointed at various times. Kings, priests were anointed. It's a word that's used throughout the Bible. And essentially it means that Jesus is the promised one that was foretold from the very beginning of scripture. Uh, Jesus as Christ means Jesus as king. Uh, Jesus is Christ means Jesus, our great high priest. Jesus is Christ means Jesus, our savior. Jesus, our God. People who have faith or belief that Jesus is Messiah, they're the ones, according to John, who've been born of God. Believers have been born of God. You see, we're members of God's family. If you're a Christian here today, if you're a believer, you are a child of God. I realize that some of you maybe grew up in broken families. Maybe your background hasn't been the prettiest, right? You've experienced a lot of hardship throughout your life. The home you were raised in was difficult. We all have baggage, but some of you have, in in particular, a special kind of baggage. The home you grew up in, the parents you had, or perhaps the parents you didn't have, they are what shaped you. They are what marked you. They are what maybe even scarred you. And now you you bear some sort of, you know, burden, from that childhood. Some of you have not come from a loving family. I know that. But I want you to know that if you are a person of faith, you belong to a new new family, God's family. And in God's family, you are children. You are sons and daughters of the Most High, where you are loved, you are embraced, you are accepted in Christ. You're part of the family. You know, maybe your earthly father was a deadbeat dad. Your heavenly father is not. Your heavenly father is not. He's different. He wants to be in the picture. He loves you. He accepts you. He embraces you. He welcomes you. He's for you and not against you. That's the kind of family we get to be a part of. It's an incredible thing to be part of the family of God. We have a God who welcomes us, embraces us, and loves us. He loves his children. We're blessed beyond measure to be part of God's family. I want you to know that. Blessed. I've shared before that growing up, we were a foster family. So throughout the course of my childhood, I've had 20 plus brothers. And one of my favorite uh, brothers that came uh, to live with us, and the reason I say favorite is because he was with us so long. He was with us for four or five years. His name was Cliff, and he came to live with us when he was about 15 or 16 years old. I was about seven years old at the time when Cliff came to live with us. Now, just to give you a little information about Cliff, uh, by the time he left our house, I mean, he, he was six foot six. He's a big guy. Okay, So Cliff lived with us for four or five years, came with, uh, to us as a teenager, and he came out of a really difficult environment. So Cliff was... Uh, born and raised in inner city Detroit. Um, His dad was never in the picture really in his life. I mean, here or there just a little bit, but his dad was pretty much absent. His mom was addicted to drugs. She was on cocaine through most of his childhood. He spent over a year living in a car with his mom and his brother in in downtown Detroit. Uh, That was Cliff's experience. And so at 15 or 16, Cliff kind of bounced around the foster care system. He eventually came to live with us for a little while, and so while Cliff was living with us, right, he began to experience what life was like as part of our family. And I, I will never forget the very first Christmas that Cliff was with us. Again, he's 15 or 16. And so Christmas Eve, right, it's the night before we get up and open presents, and we're walking around, and we are in the living room. and We walk out there. We see the Christmas tree, and there are presents out there, presents for me. There are presents for my brother, Justin. Um, and then there are presents for Cliff, our foster brother. There's an equal amount for me, for Justin, And for Cliff. And I remember when Cliff saw that, he just, his mind was blown. He had never experienced like a loving, uh, Christmas where he's receiving gifts and things are healthy. And so he, he sees these gifts and, and at 15 or 16, right? You think at that age, most kids are kind of like, yeah, Christmas, they're over it. He was like a little kid. I remember that night I was trying to go to sleep and we were all sleeping in the basement and Cliff kept waking us up because he was so excited for Christmas morning, 15, 16 years old. He was so excited and he gets up the next morning and, you know, he's, he's just, his eyes lit up. You're just so, so thankful. And and, and the reason why Cliff was so thankful was because he was a Burkabeen now. He was completely equal with me and my brother. He was part of the family. While he was with us, he was family. And he got to receive the blessing of the family. And, beloved, this is our story. I I don't know your background, it might have been terrible. Those scars may still haunt you, but if you're part of God's family, you have equal share. You're fully part of it, your family. You're welcomed, you're blessed, you're embraced as part of the family. We are members of God's family, and that's an incredible thing. That's who we are. That's who we are. And so now that we've seen, first of all, number one, the membership, the membership of a a true believer, Uh, the second thing I want to look at as we begin to work our way through the text, number two is the mindset of a true believer, the mindset. Notice what John says next. So going back to the beginning, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Then he continues and says this, He says, and everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. Now, as we continue in this first verse, we see here, the next thing we discover is that this idea of loving the father and loving his children, fellow believers, this is a concept that cannot be separated. It cannot be divorced from one another. I've heard Christians sometimes say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. And I get it. I get it. People are wounded by the church. People are wounded by other Christians. I understand the baggage that comes with church sometimes. Church hurt is a real thing. And I've said before, if, if we've ever caused that, I am so sorry because we don't want to do that. But the reality is, Christians aren't perfect. The church is not perfect, Jesus is. But we're all sinners saved by grace. And so for some people, they say, you know, I, I love Jesus, but you know, I can't really do it with the church. Unfortunately, biblically, you can't say that. You can't have that mindset. You can't do that. It's clear. If you're a Christian, you love the Father and you love the children, right? This is not some buffet here. We're not at Golden Corral. Oh, I'll take love in the Father. I'm not really interested over here. No. This isn't a la carte, right? We, you love the Father. You also love His children. You also love the church. You love other believers. This is a package deal. That's just how it works. In fact, the the text here, when it says everyone who loves the father, there's a Greek word that's normally used for father. This word is specifically a word that means a man who begets, right? Who produces children. So everyone who loves the, the one who produces children, the father, loves those who've been produced, loves those who've been born of him. Everyone who loves the father loves those born of him. Christians love both. It's just what we do. It's part of what the family does. We are part of a family now. This is family expectations. We love each other. That's it. And I notice here how John doesn't frame this up as a command. He says, this is just the reality. This is just the way it is. It's what Christians do. We love the father, we love his children. Now, if you look at the end of chapter four, I want you to notice how there, this is not new territory. John has already talked about loving the father and loving his children, but there he frames it up as a command. He frames it up differently. He says, and this is the command we have from him, meaning from Jesus. The very last verse, verse 21 of chapter four, whoever loves God must love his brother. Okay, so we've already seen the command in in this book. But this isn't just something that's commanded. It's also demanded. It's expected, in fact. It's both commanded and expected. It's just part of the mindset. That's what Christians do. And so let me ask you right now, does this characterize your life? Are you a person who can honestly and openly say, yeah, I love my father and I love all his children. I love all my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love them. Does that embody your life? Come on, get real for a second. Don't pretend here. Be honest with yourself. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Because if there's a beef between you and another fellow believer, you got to figure that stuff out. Don't let that linger. Don't let that say, go be reconciled. Go seek forgiveness. Go seek restoration, whatever you need to do. In fact, that's why Scripture is really clear about even like your offering. I hope you're not giving. If you've got a beef between someone, stop giving to us and be reconciled first. We don't want your money if you have an unresolved conflict. We would rather have you deal with that and then give your gift. That's what Jesus says. We gotta deal with it. So let me ask you a question. Do you love your brothers and sisters? And notice here how John is clear loves whoever has been born of him. This is not right, this is not like, oh, well, there's certain people we don't know. No exceptions. Think about it for a minute. The dude who you see here on Sunday morning who tells the same stinking story every single week when you walk in the commons, right? You see him, you go, oh, I'm going to go over past the coffee. I'm not going to go get coffee right now. He's in line. I'm going to avoid this guy. That dude, think about him. Do you love him? You all have somebody. Do we love them? Everyone who loves the Father loves everyone. Whoever has been born of him. This is the mindset of a believer. It's both commanded and expected. So now that we've seen the membership of a true believer and the mindset of a true believer, the next thing we're going to see in our text, John is going to talk about the mark of a true believer. What's the evidence of a true believer? Well, notice what he says as he picks up. He he writes this in in verse 2. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God. Now, the sentence continues, and I don't want to answer it for a second, just because I want to remind you of something before I finish this sentence, what John is doing in this passage. If you notice in this passage, he's taken a number of truths, and he's linked them together. He's made a chain of truth uh, throughout this section so far. A number of true statements that are connected, and, and, and it's kind of like, do you remember growing up in math class, how they would have this kind of equation? This is like a, the sample, right? If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. You remember Anybody remember that at all? Uh, is, that, is that called a, a transitive relation? I had to Google search that. I don't know. Is that it? It could be wrong. I'm terrible at math. I, I'm really bad. My kids, are uh, my two oldest, are third and fifth grade. And when they ask me math questions, I say, hey, like, YouTube it. I don't know. I can't help you. <laughs> Seriously, I'm not. They are surpassed my ability to do math. I don't know what it's called. I, I Google search this. I think it's a transitive relation. You math nerds can tell me later if I'm wrong. Either way. You get the idea. A equals B. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. It's a logical thing, right? It it, it helps us understand, determine what's logical. Well, we see the same thing in John's passage. If you notice here, he says all these strings of connected truths. He says anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ equals a child of God. Every child of God is someone who loves the Father. Every person who loves the Father also loves his children. All these truths are strung together. Do you see the chain he's created in our passage? And so these are all interconnected. And so when we go to our question, or to to this, by this we know that we love the children of God. That's connected to all those other things. By this we We know who loves the children of God. By this, we know who loves the Father. By this, we know who are God's children. By this, we know those who have faith. By this, we know who are Christians, right? The the crux of what he's asking here is he's looking for evidence. How do we know that our faith is genuine? This is it. How do we know that our faith is genuine? Well, he answers this. By this, we know when we love God and obey his commandments. When we love God and obey his commandments. The mark of a true believer is love And obedience, that's it. Love and obedience. In fact, these two concepts, they can't be divorced or disconnected either. Remember Jesus in the upper room when he met with his disciples shortly before he was killed in John 14, he's there, this intimate moment of teaching. And there he says this to his disciples. He says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. If you love me, you will obey what I command. They're, They're connected. You can't separate the two. Love of God and obedience. These two things are the mark of a true believer. That's how you know you belong to Christ if your life is characterized by love and obedience. Now, remember, this is not John saying that in every moment of your life, in every scenario, you are perfectly loving and perfectly obedient. No, we know the truth. I am messed up and so are you. We're going to fail. We're going to fall short. He's not saying in every scenario. He's speaking here in generalities, right? Followers of Jesus, by and large, our life is marked by love and obedience. That's the fruit that we should produce in our life if we're connected to Christ and if we have the power of the Spirit at work within us. We should be living out a life, by and large, of love and obedience. That should characterize every Christian. When you look at my life, you should go, oh, yeah, I'm seeing someone who loves God and who is obedient. When, you, when I look at your life, I should see the same thing. By and large, that's what we should see. And so this should embody every Christian. And so if Christians are people who obey, who obey, then that brings us back to our initial question. The question we need to ask ourselves is why? Why do Christians obey? What's the internal driver? What's the motivation for our obedience? Do we obey because we have to, or do we obey because we want to? Well, John is going to answer that for us in our very last section. And so now that we've seen, number one, the membership of a, new, of a, of a, of a true believer, the mindset of a true believer, uh, we've seen the mark of a true believer. The final thing we're going to look at now, number four, is the motive. The motive, what is the motive of a true believer? What's the motivation behind their obedience? Well, notice what he says as we pick things up in verse three. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Did you notice what John says here? Christians are to keep God's commandments, but commandments are not burdensome. Being obedient to God, listening to what Jesus says, it shouldn't be a burden. Now, why does John say that it's not a burden? Well, I think there are two main reasons that we see in our text. Firstly, I want you to go back and remember what we just talked about. How did John describe us? We are members of God's family. We're part of God's household. We're members of a family where love is at the center of everything we do. We love the Father, and we love all those who are born of the Father. And so if we love the Father so much, right, if that's true of us, then then we should want to honor our Father. We should want to please our Father. And the way in which we honor and please our Father is by living a life of obedience to the Father. Not because of law, but because of love. Do you notice that here? Love is a much stronger, a much better motivation than law. Love is so much greater. I'll give you an example. It's amazing. I've got um, a two-year-old daughter. Her name is May. She is beautiful. She looks just like her mom. Cutest little girl ever, and I love her. She's so much fun right now. But they don't call it the terrible twos for nothing. I'll just say that, right? This girl. Uh, at two years old, she's got you know a lot of she's got a, a you know strong-willed you know kind of a will of iron. Uh, she wants to do her own thing. She doesn't want to be told what to do. She's got kind of that like already that kind of like three snaps snap, you know sass going on. You know the, like she just like you tell her. And so lately, um, she's been doing this thing where she it's weird. She walks around the house and she grabs random things and she puts them in like a little bag or something. She'll she'll have so she'll walk around and. She likes to grab like our coasters. She'll grab a coaster, put it in this little bag. Uh, She walked around the other day, grabbed a candle, put it in the bag. And then she'll grab a couple of her toys and put them in a bag. And and at the end, she's got this bag full of random things. And then what she likes to do sometimes is she likes to walk in the living room and just start chucking stuff, just throwing it on the ground. And now that we have a dog, right? That's a pain in the butt because the dog is gonna chew on the stuff she's throwing. Right, it's a big thing. So when May does that, I often say, May, pick it up. Well, when I say that, and she knows it's a rule, it's a law, that she has to do that. If she knows it's a have to, what does she do? She looks at me like, I ain't picking that up. I don't know who you are, but I'm not going to do it. She doesn't say anything. She just looks at me, looks down, and looks back at me. Right? Like, like, what are you going to do? So I'm like, May, pick it up. Right? She is not intimidated whatsoever. So... It it gets to a point, we've had many battles lately, um, and we've really, I mean, I've probably lost most of the battles, because what I do by the end, I'm like making her body pick it up, like I'm rendering her down. And then by by that point, I'm, I'm actually the one picking it up, you know, if it makes any sense. But Either way, that's what she does. But if May knows deep down that something that she should do would please her daddy, do you know how much more willing she is to help? The other day I was in our playroom. We had toys up there, and it's always a mess. And so I went in. It was bedtime, but we had we had to pick up because it was just trash up there. And so I was cleaning up. It was just me and May in there. And we're in that room. And I expected her not to help one lick. In fact, I expected to be cleaning, and she's throwing things down while I'm cleaning. But at one point I just said, "Hey, May, you know what would would really make Daddy happy if you just help me pick up?" And she said, "Okay, Dad." And I could see right she was helping and working. She did great because she wanted to do whatever would make her Daddy happy. She wanted to please her Daddy. Why was she helping? Not because it was a law, but because she loves me. She loves me. May's motivation isn't to be driven by rules. It's to be driven by relationship. I'm her daddy. She wants to make me happy. You see, obedience to God is not drudgery. When we do it for the right reasons. If you're checking boxes and jumping through hoops and going through the motions and following the rules simply because you have to, then yes, a life of obedience to God, that can be a burden. That can be a burden. But you see, obedience to God is not burdensome, not when it's motivated by love, because you're part of the family and I can make my daddy happy. Oh, I'll do whatever you want. Do you see the difference? Do you see where one is legalistic and one is just loving? There's a difference here. It's our natural response. It pours out of us obedience when we love the Father. It's not about have to, it's about want to when it's driven by love. And so this is the first reason why John tells us that the commands of God are not burdensome. It's because we're part of the family and we get to please and, and, and honor our Father who we'd love. That's the first reason. But there's another reason. I think as we unpack the text, we see something else in verse 4. Notice what he says in verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That's what he says next. Now, I want you to take note especially of the very first word here. We have the word for. The word for that's used here signifies that what John is about to say is the grounds for why God's commands are not burdensome. Like the point here, he says God's commands, they're not burdensome, for this reason. And what's this reason? For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the second reason why God's commands aren't burdensome. Because the truth is the world will try to tear us down. Uh, the world will try to fight for our attention and our affection and our allegiance. The world will tell us that God's commands are a burden, that we shouldn't listen, right? We shouldn't waste our time following, obeying God. That sounds like, a, like, like just a, a burden. Man, what a waste. That sounds like a drag. Why would we want to obey God? No, Blaze your own trail. Be your own man. Call the shots for yourself. Live your own life. Why are you so focused on obeying what God says? That sounds burdensome. That's what the world says. I've shared before that for me in college was the moment where God really started getting a hold of my heart and wanting to share my faith. And so I had a number of people I talked to in college, and I just remember talking to them about what it looked like to follow Jesus. And they looked at me like I was crazy, like, wow, that's a terrible kind of life. I remember them just kind of saying, hey, well, you know, that sounds really great when I'm old and can't do anything. But I'm young. I want to have fun. So I'm not interested in your God. I would rather do my own thing right now. I'd rather enjoy life while I'm young. They would say that often. But I want you to know the world always over promises and under delivers. Always. Always. True happiness is not autonomy. Autonomy. True joy, true freedom is not saying, hey, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Forget God. I'm just going to do my own thing. That's not true freedom. The truth is true freedom is a life that's connected to Jesus that says, I'm going to do whatever God wants me to do. That's true freedom. That's true life. That's true joy. That's true happiness. And the only people who realize that are people who have overcome the world, who've said, yeah, we know the world will offer all these things. It's not worth it. We know that. We are the ones, believers, who have overcome the world. We know the truth. The world looks so appealing, but in the end, it will leave you feeling burdened. It will leave you feeling hollow. It will leave you feeling empty. Only Jesus satisfies. Those who overcome the world know this. We know it. And so that's why we obey. That's why his commands are not burdensome, because we know the truth. So as I wrap up this message this morning, I want to circle back to the big question that we posed in the beginning of the message. When it comes to obeying God, why do we do it? What's our primary driver? What's our motivation? What's the driving force behind our obedience to God? Do we obey because we have to and it's just one of those rules we've got to follow? Or do we obey because we want to? Well, beloved, if we really embrace what john has told us about what it means to be a christian i think the answer is really simple and this is it this is the big idea obeying god should be our desire not just our duty it should be the the desire of your heart because you're part of god's family and you love your dad and you want to do whatever it would be that would please him and because you've seen the world, in fact you've seen what the world promises and and you've overcome the world you're not interested in that you know the truth It should be your desire, not just your duty. I don't want to have this be a church of people who who go through the motions and follow the rules because they have to. Because at the end of the day, if all your motivation is because you have to, it's going to be a legalistic place here. I want you to obey God because you want to. Obedience to Jesus isn't just a chore. It's a privilege. It's a blessing. It's not an obstacle that we get over. It's an opportunity that we embrace. Do you see the difference? Obey Jesus because you want to. Make it your heart's desire. Does that mean that Jesus calls you to do easy things? No. That's not what he means when John says they're not burdensome. Sometimes Jesus calls us to do hard things. When you're in the midst of a situation where you can yield to your flesh and you know that there's going to be some satisfaction there, but you want to be obedient to Jesus. And so you're doing the difficult thing of making sure that you're making the decision that most honors him and not gratifies your flesh. That's a hard thing to do. That's not easy. But it doesn't have to be a burden when you know, you know what, this is going to please my father. This is a way to love and honor my father. And I know that ultimately what the world is offering is not going to be enough. Then it's not burdensome. Let's be a church that wants to obey Jesus. Yeah, stuff is hard, but there might be times where you go, you know what, is it worth it? Is obeying God in this situation, is it really worth it? I want you to hear me right now. Don't ask, is it worth it? Ask Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of your love? Is he worthy of your obedience? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. This is why the the book of Revelation says, worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. God is worthy of everything. All our love, all our affection." All our obedience. So let's live a life of obedience to him. Let's live a life of obedience to God. Not just because we have to, but because we want to. Let's pray. Lord, you're so good. You are so good to us. I realize that there are situations right now that people are in that are difficult and maybe obedience to you is hard. There are struggles and temptations. There are past wounds. All sorts of things that often get in the way of our obedience to you. And maybe we're looking at what it means to follow you faithfully. And we see that as a burden. But Lord, change and shape our minds and hearts today through your word and by the power of your spirit. Because we know, Lord, that your commands are not burdensome. They are good. They're good because they're opportunities to please our Father. And because we know that this is what's best for us. The world will promise all sorts of things, but you know what? We've overcome the world. We don't need to listen to the world. We know it's a lie. Let's embrace the truth and be obedient to you. So help us to be the people you've called us to be. Lord, if we are the people you've called us to be, I know that this church would make an impact in this region that people from every community around here would see the way that we live, not that we're living in obedience out of legalism because we have to check boxes, but we're doing it out of love. They would see that and they'd say, man, there's something about that church. No, there's something about that Jesus. I wanna know him. I wanna know more about him. I wanna hear more about him. Lord, I know that if we were people who lived faithfully and obediently to you, we would change this community, change this region. We'd be part of the ones that help change this world for your glory. And so Lord, help us to be the church you've called us to be. We are people who love the Father. Members of your family who love you, Father, and we love your children. And not only do we love your children, but we display the fact that we love your children and we love you and that we're connected to you by the way that we love you and by the way that we obey you. So help us to obey you because it's not a burden. It's not a burden, it's a blessing. And help us to realize that. Help us to obey you, not because we just have to, but because we want to, because we know when we do, when we do that, Father, that we honor you, we glorify you, and we bless ourselves and those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.